Well, if you have your Bibles tonight, I invite you to look with me in the book of 1 John. It's toward the very back in the New Testament. We'll have some scriptures on the screen as well. But the book of 1 John chapter 1 is where we will be camping out tonight. I believe in the forgiveness of sin. This is the phrase we're focusing on tonight. You know, forgiveness is power. Think with me for a moment about the power of forgiveness. In our common experience, most of us have been wronged. Would you agree with a head nod that at some point in your life someone has wronged you? Maybe in that moment, you might not have known it, but you experienced this power, the power of forgiveness. Unfortunately, though, if you are anything like me, if you're anything like me, we use this power many times over people. Tonight we will see from Scripture the perfect example of how this power is supposed to be used. But what about the times when we misuse the power? There is a lot of subtlety in harboring unforgiveness toward others. It usually looks something like this. Imagine this scenario. Someone wrongs you or me, and they apologize. This is, I would say, our culture's most common form of asking for forgiveness. Usually they don't say, would you forgive me? But they apologize for what they've done. I, now with all of the power rattle off a common phrase such as, oh, don't worry about that, or no big deal, or no worries, or it's okay, it's all right. We go our separate ways. However, I usually remember the offense later, probably even discuss it with my friends or my loved ones, something like this. Can you believe that they did that to me? Can you believe they said that? What was she thinking? It was so disrespectful. In my failure to offer true forgiveness to the one who wronged me, I have wielded the power over this person. And if I know me at all, I'll probably use it against them sometime down the road. Forgiveness has great power. It's clear to see that I have done Number one, myself a disservice by harboring unforgiveness. And this is what I mean. When you hold a grudge against someone who sought reconciliation, remember the person who wronged me came and asked for forgiveness by apologizing. They sought reconciliation in that relationship. I am preventing it by my refusal to offer forgiveness. Absolute refusal. Because subconsciously or consciously, I, it would require me to give up the power that I have over them. It would require some level of sacrifice. Sacrificing my pride, sacrificing the desire that I have to later get back at them, sacrificing that, uh, as the book of Proverbs talks about, that morsel of honey, sometimes how it tastes or feels good to discuss this matter later on with someone else so that I know that someone else knows that I was wronged. And you get some level of gratification in your heart for that. So I've done myself a disservice by harboring that unforgiveness because I am holding on to this person. I'm holding power over them 
that they asked me to release. But also, I've done my friend a disservice by refusing to offer real forgiveness. In doing so, I have given them a false idea. A false idea that the issue is behind us. When in reality, they will be blindsided later down the road when I throw it back in their face. Subtly, or maybe not so subtly. So tonight, what I want to do is open up God's word, the epistle or letter that the Apostle John wrote, to see what the truth, the word of God, has to say about forgiveness. Look with me in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. This is the Apostle John writing to the church. He says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he, the Lord, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Before we jump back into the little scenario that I just described involving my unforgiveness toward my friend, let's seek to understand what this word of truth means about vertical forgiveness, the way that God forgives us. And then at the end of the sermon, we'll come back into how that relates to horizontal forgiveness, how we forgive one another. So if you'd like to have some easy reminders about forgiveness, I encourage you to take some notes on your worship folder you were given when you came in or in your phone or on your tablet so that later you can return for direction and encouragement about the idea of forgiveness. So from verse 8, we see our first point tonight. The first point is, we have sin. Number one, we have sin. John says that not only do we have sin in us, but that we should recognize that sin, or we are lying to ourselves. The culture in which we live, I would say, takes this concept very seriously. A community held, a commonly held virtue among most worldviews that exist, even among the wide spectrum of worldviews you may have in New York City, including Christianity, is that we as humans are to be, quote, true to ourselves. Most worldviews accept that. And I would argue even Christianity. While this may mean to some that we are to freely act as we please and never deny ourselves of something we truly desire or feel, to Christians, those who are following Jesus, I would say it means something different to be true to yourself. For a Christian, being true to oneself means to take an honest look at the desires of one's heart. To analyze your thoughts and your feelings, and not just analyze them, but then think critically about them. Admitting when they are sinful instead of lying, which is self-deception, according to John. A non-Christian may notice that they have strong feelings against another person, okay? Maybe feelings of hatred even. And they may say something like, I despise this person, so I will avoid them. You may even think, that sounds good to me. If I despise or hate someone, I should probably avoid them so that I don't have any temptation to get into trouble, right? So a non-Christian may just say that and leave it. 
Be true to oneself. You don't like this person. Don't go around them. The Christian, though, in that scenario says, I despise that person, and yet I am called to love them. It, I, I am in sin if I remain in hatred toward them. What about the character of Christ? It needs to come to my life, it needs to come in me, so that I may learn to love them like he does. You see how that difference is illustrated? They're both being true to themselves, but one of them doesn't take hatred or self-deception for granted. One may say, I, I, I don't like this person. I have hatred in my heart toward them, so I will avoid them. But the Christian worldview would say, if you have hatred inside your heart for someone, you should think about why. And then, after you discover, analyze why, you should critically think about how Jesus would instruct you to love them. What about the character of Jesus would show you how to love that person? And Jesus has given us plenty of real hard examples in the Gospels, right, of how to love people who are poorer than us and richer than us. How to love people who, are, who look exactly like us and have the same common cultural background and how to love people who look completely different than us and have different cultural backgrounds. He has taught us how to enter into being true to oneself without sacrificing love for one another. The first step in being true to yourself, as John calls us here in the book of John, 1 John, is to admit that you have sin. It's only then that you can live in truth avoiding self-deception. What happens, though, when you admit your sins and are overcome with guilt? What happens when you admit your sins, you're overcome with the guilt that's associated with them? After all, to admit, or uh, the Christian term, confess sin, is to plead guilty. You are, in essence, saying, I admit I am guilty. What do you do when that guilt overwhelms you? I want to encourage you to think about guilt in in at least these two different ways. Guilt can be objective or subjective. When we have committed a sin, we are objectively guilty based on the law of God. Like Daniel said a, a moment ago in the big idea, he said, if you have sinned against the state of New York, you are objectively guilty. And I would say the feeling of guilt you have is subjective, Here's what I mean. Subjective guilt is the guilt that we associate with our sin after it has before or after it has been forgiven. It's the personal guilt we feel. We'll talk about that after point three. But guilt exists because of the reality of sin. Guilt in the objective sense is something we deserve. If you sin against the law of God, you deserve the guilt the guilty verdict. If you sin against the state of New York or the government of the United States of America, you deserve the guilt. If the verdict comes down as guilty, it's something you deserve. Thankfully, though, John has given us, uh, sorry, so in this guilty state, we must turn to God. In the objectively guilty state, we must turn to God for forgiveness. 
And thankfully, John has given us sort of a roadmap here in the book of 1 John to find out how to do that. Look in uh, verse 9. Read with me in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, the sins that we are objectively guilty of. I admit I am guilty. If we confess that, the word of God, backed by the power of the Holy Spirit, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and the almighty hand of God the Father, with that authority comes this proclamation. I am faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. He is objectively declaring you not guilty. Number two is that forgiveness requires confession. We have sin. Forgiveness requires confession. Forgiveness is conditional. It happens only after we confess our sins to the Lord. It's not, confession is not begging or bargaining. Have you guys ever done that? I would like to say that I, I only did that a lot as a child, you know, come to God and say, Lord, I would really like to stop this sin. So if you could forgive me, I would love to be committed to not doing it again. Bargaining with God, which is in its own way holding some power against God. But confession is not bargaining. It's not begging. It's simply admitting that you have sin. It's seeing the guilt It's realizing that guilt and then speaking it, either out loud or in your heart or in your mind. The love of God is unconditional. See this throughout Scripture. God has shown his love by giving life to all, by blessing us with the earth, with relationships, blessing us with his word, his son. These are all called common grace. These things are a part of God's unconditional love. This love is also seen and heard in an important part of the vision of Connection Church. We say, and we strive to, love people regardless of their response to the gospel. Or us. So we're saying, unconditionally, whether someone responds with love, hatred, apathy, ignorance, I will respond with love. This is unconditional love. This is because no one has to do anything to become a recipient of God's love. It's unconditional. But his forgiveness, though, comes with a few strings, as it were. John says here that forgiveness requires confession. In order to receive forgiveness, we must confess or admit our sin to him. Another condition of forgiveness is made perfectly clear in a parable that Jesus told that's recorded in the book of Matthew. So I want to read that parable to you. Enter into this story with me. As Jesus is preaching, he begins telling this story after a question is asked him. So we pick it up in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter, one of his disciples, has a question about forgiveness. So we see Peter comes up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? 
Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And Jesus begins a story. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and his children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you back everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, a servant under him, who owed him just 100 denarii, a fraction of what 10,000 talents would be. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down. His fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master, the first master, whom this man owes 10,000 talents, summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. And Jesus ends with this sentence. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you and I if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We must forgive others to be forgiven. It is a condition of forgiveness. Even the prayer that Jesus taught us, which is known as the Lord's Prayer, says, and I quote, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. You and I will be forgiven by God, our sin, with the same measure, or as we are, as we go about forgiving others. Forgiveness is conditional. We all have sin. We all have sin, number one. Number two, forgiveness requires confession. It doesn't just happen. It's not like the love of God, which you can count on. It's unconditional. Forgiveness must be asked for and practiced. Finally, look to the end of verse 9 and discover what it is that forgiveness actually does for us. You notice I didn't actually say anything about what forgiveness is. We have our assumptions, right? But what does the word of God teach about what forgiveness actually is? Listen to verse 9 again. If we confess our sins, you remember, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and in the end to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, that one's John 1.9. It's a great verse, but it's not 1 John 1.9. 
probably my error in the slides. But 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You heard this song we sang a moment ago about the atonement of the blood of Jesus. If it seems strange for you to to sing a song about blood, think about the symbolism. Think about what the blood of Jesus does. That song says it so clearly. It atones for our sins and it cleanses us from unrighteousness. It's taken right here from this scripture. Number three is this. Forgiveness leads to cleansing. Forgiveness leads to cleansing. Here is the security we find in salvation. This is the security of salvation. As we talked about in the intro, forgiveness requires sacrifice, right? I said, if I'm going to actually forgive this person and not hold the power over them, I have to sacrifice. It's not free. The one who has been wronged must sacrifice in order to offer the forgiveness. To secure forgiveness for all sinners everywhere for all time, to secure that, Jesus had to sacrifice his life. In the agony of the cross and the victory over death by resurrection, Jesus secured forgiveness for all who confess their sin. In the agony of why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he suffer? Why didn't he just proclaim it well? Why didn't he just redeem the earth by the power of his word? Because forgiveness requires sacrifice. The pain, the blood that was shed, the will that it took to remain on the cross even when he was ridiculed and challenged and dared to come down to prove he is God. That was all Jesus' sacrifice to win the forgiveness that you and I receive by grace through our confession. This forgiveness cleanses us in such a way that it allows our acceptance into the house of the Lord. A couple of weeks ago, many of you helped my wife and I move into our new house with our boys. One of the things that Lindsay has desired from the beginning of this process, which lasted months that you guys walked so faithfully with us through of getting this new home, one of the things she was diehard about was having white walls everywhere. White. And I know that if you've ever looked at paint swatches or been to Home Depot or Lowe's, you know that there are 123,210 different shades of white. But she wanted the whitest white. And we have three little boys. So my first thought was, why in the world would we ever put ourselves through that? She found a workaround, and it's worked great so far after two weeks. This paint you can scrub, and it doesn't come off. Just whatever was on it come off, came off. So that's perfect. But many of you painted our house white. The ceiling, all of the walls, the whole house, starch white. I'll never forget the most beautiful illustration of what it is the cleansing of forgiveness does for us. It involved a white house. 
So we picture the holiness of God. And sometimes it's difficult for us to personify holiness. What does it mean to actually be holy? Some have said holiness means to literally be set apart, to be completely different. And in that sense, think about it like a house. Not just any house you might see on a block, but a white house, the whitest of houses. Not just on the inside, like my house, which has now been decorated with a myriad of colors, but white on the outside and white on the inside, starch white. If you need to picture it clearly, close your eyes even, and let that be what you think of as holiness and perfection. This is the character of God. This is the house of God, the kingdom, perfectly white. And sin is any speck of dust or splatter of paint or blood, any tracks of mud that come in from the outside. Sin is when you were on your way home and it started raining, but you had the unfortunate event of having walked your dog and they come into that white house off of the streets of New York City and the house is splattered everywhere with dog tracks and the dog shakes in the middle of the white house And the water goes everywhere, but the water is dirty because you were walking your dog in New York City. This is sin. If it came in, it would stain things. What the sacrifice of Jesus did is it cleansed you and I of all of our unrighteousness. When we confess our sins, what God is saying in essence is, I am faithful And I am just to stand outside my house by the power of Jesus and wash you. Wash you clean so that you may come into the house of God where sin cannot be. It's not that God didn't purchase the right paint that he could scrub off. It's that sin doesn't work like that. In order for us to step into the house of God, we must be cleansed of our unrighteousness. And church, forgiveness is what cleanses us. And I want you and I to be bold in our proclamation that we believe in the forgiveness of sins, to understand that that means we believe that when we feel subjectively guilty, God has objectively proclaimed us not guilty. The, object, the, the difference between the objective and the subjective guilt is this. I am standing outside God's house. I have admitted my sin and confessed it before the Lord. And Jesus has come and washed me. He says, I am faithful and just. You are cleansed. You are forgiven. And I stand in the face of Almighty God and say, I don't feel forgiven. I feel guilty. Church, that is subjective guilt. He is saying, you are free. And I am saying, I feel guilty. Allow this line in this creed to remind you that you are both objectively and subjectively forgiven. Bind your heart and your mind to the truth of the word of God. Not because I said it, but because the Lord has proclaimed it. You are free. 
You are free to enter in to everything that God has purposed for you. Don't allow your subjective guilt feelings to keep you from the joy of your salvation, which is secure in the forgiveness that Jesus offers us. So I said we would return to horizontal forgiveness. Maybe it's become clear to you. But if not, think about that hypothetical scenario from before. Like this. Someone wrongs me and apologizes. Remember our culture's most common way of asking for forgiveness. I'm sorry, I apologize. I, now with all of this power, choose to sacrifice my pride and offer them genuine forgiveness. Instead of sweeping it under the rug with a phrase that minimizes the offense, like, oh, it wasn't a big deal, or don't worry about it, and that allows me to retain power over this person. Instead of that, I say these words. I forgive you. This is the crowd participation part of the service. I would like to invite you to open your eyes, prepare to speak, and repeat after me. I forgive you. One more time. I forgive you. Not only are you giving freedom to the person who asked for your forgiveness, but you are freeing yourself from the dangers and the snares of holding on to that power you and I don't deserve to hold on to. Remember, they, they pleaded, they asked for your forgiveness. They have given you the freedom to let go of that. And as a follower of Christ, we are called to take it even one step further and offer that forgiveness before they even ask so that you're prepared and ready in your heart when they come to you saying, I forgive you and I already forgave you. I have already forgiven you. Thank you for apologizing. I want to challenge you this week, and I'm going to challenge myself, to when someone apologizes to you, begin saying those words. I forgive you. I would imagine it will be difficult for us to not say our common, don't worry about it, it's okay, no big deal, even if it's the smallest offense. I dare you, when you're at a restaurant later this week, and the food comes out late, and the waiter or waitress apologizes to you, I dare you to say, I forgive you, instead of, it's okay, no big deal. And see what type of response you get from offering someone what they actually wanted. They didn't want you to say it wasn't a big deal. To them, it was a big deal. That's why they apologized. Give them the forgiveness they're asking for in your horizontal relationships. So at the end of that scenario, we go our separate ways. And instead of talking about this to other friends, I continually remind the person that they are forgiven when they apologize again. Because as you know, it's difficult to apologize once for something. So someone's, the person's probably going to come back to you again and apologize later. And you can remind them again, I forgive you. I have forgiven you. I've set it aside. If someone else brings up the offense later and gives you that, they offer you that morsel of honey to gossip or speak ill of this person, You don't have to tell them off or remind them how holy you are by forgiving that person. Just remind them. Just tell them, I've forgiven them. We're good. We've reconciled. They're forgiven.
Remember, church, saying, I believe in the forgiveness of sin, frees you from objective guilt. It frees you from subjective guilt, the feelings of guilt that you have. It gives you the freedom then, after your vertical reconciliation has happened. It gives you the freedom to offer that forgiveness horizontally to your friends, to your loved ones, and to your enemies when they ask for it and when they don't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for giving us the freedom to receive forgiveness by the confession of our sin. And God, thank you for what a gift it is to give forgiveness to others. I pray that we would practice giving that gift often. I pray that the joy that we get from giving people physical gifts throughout the year at special occasions would be replicated each time we have the opportunity to give someone the gift of forgiveness when they apologize or ask for it. And God, challenge us to go one step further into the heart of God and offer that forgiveness even to our enemies, even to those who we do not think deserve it. Remembering that when we didn't deserve it, you offered it to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.